thank you, Trevor. Did you pronounce my name so well? Thank you. Everyone calls me MP normally. Um, I would like to thank Sackpaw for having me uh, here tonight. I think it's great that uh, you know you're taking an interest in uh, preserving the, help, uh, the headwaters of the castle and the old man. And I'm going to talk about forest fires, and I'm hoping I can shed some light into the role of uh, historical fire regimes and how they're used in uh, forest management uh, today. I know I only have 20 minutes, and uh, I'm going to have to go quite fast through some of the slides. So if you see that I'm skipping, it's because I'm running <laughs> short on time. But I would like to start by giving a definition of what the fire regime uh, is, and then uh, talk about the fire histories in southern Alberta. Uh, I will touch on the lead fire causes, and then give you some uh, differences between the different fire regimes of the subalpine, the montane, and the foothills landscapes. Mm -hmm. Then I will focus on uh, the areas of interest. Unfortunately, there's no data uh, for the castle or for the old man, but there's a lot of fire history studies nearby that I can use uh, that will apply uh, quite well for, for your area of interest. Uh, so I will talk about the upper foothills, the elbow uh, up north, which is the surrogate for the castle, and then the highwood uh, region, which is just north adjacent to the old man. And I will con conclude the talk with uh, ecosystem departure and touching on the forest management in the, in the castle. So first, I think it would be important for me to talk, uh, to say what a fire regime is, because this is the main <laughs> focus of the talk. Uh, it, it includes different variables, and it will include fire cause. So is it a regime that is driven by lightning-caused fires versus human-caused fires? Uh, what kind of fire intensity do we get? Are we talking about scan replacing fires, high intensity fires, or low intensity surface fires? Uh, looking at the mean fire size, what is the range of fires that we uh, get through that uh, landscape? Uh, what is the, um, you know, the annual rate of burning, uh, as well as uh, the fire cycle? And the fire cycle, I underline it because we often hear logging companies talking about fire rotation or logging rotation, it, it comes from the fire cycle, which is a number of years it takes to burn uh, an area. So if you have a, a landscape that is 100 square kilometer, for example, it would be how many years would it take to burn an area that is equivalent to 100 square kilometers, meaning that there will be some portions of that landscape that will burn uh, several times, and others might not burn at all. So it's just the summation of the burn areas. And a fire history study uh, is a component of the fire regime uh, analysis, and it's about going into the field and collecting tree samples to be able to age uh, the forest, and uh, also looking at archives, old fire, uh, fire reference reports, and try to, to establish a chronological order to evaluate the fire return intervals. If I'm going really fast, you can ask me questions at the end. I will be happy to entertain questions. So, like Trevor said, I've been doing this for about 20 years. The research is always the same, uh, no matter who hires me. Uh, I've worked uh, for Parks Canada for, for many years as a consultant. I've done a lot, a lot of work in national parks, as well as for protected areas and wilderness areas. And they use the fire history and fire regime research for uh, applying prescribed burns for ecosystem restoration objectives. But I also worked for the logging industry quite a bit. I've worked for Spray Lake Sawmills uh, for many years, and I still work for them. No one's paying me to be here tonight, so it's all out of my own will, and I'm happy to share uh, my knowledge. 
Um, and then the industry used now the, the area so that they can try to emulate natural disturbances. And also, I'm sure you've all heard of uh, smart, fire smarting programs for communities that are uh, live next to forests. Uh, so that they know the risk of burning uh, on the landscape, and they use that. Inf the, the information I gather is often used for public educa education sessions, like we're having tonight, uh, because the, the greatest impact is that with knowledge comes understanding and um, and acceptance of any kind of management actions the the government or the industry uh, may take. So I, I thank you everybody for being here tonight because it's great I get to share share what I know. So I mentioned earlier, there's a number of fire industry studies that have been done. So all the hatch pattern, uh, there's work from all the way from Jasper, the Hinton uh, Pulp, FMA, and all the way to Waterton. So really the Southern Rockies are very well covered in terms of uh, knowledge for fire history and fire regime study. Where we don't have the hatch pattern uh, in here, that's the C5 FNU. And uh, the castle is here, the old man is up in here. In 2005, I did do the fire regime analysis, but there's no fire history that was collected. But yesterday, I got the, the announcements from the government that this summer I will be in the castle. There's a big fire history uh, project that will be taking place. Uh, over 150 plots will be uh, collected in, uh, in the castle. So we'll get uh, local information, which will be great. So I'd like to talk about uh, our probabilities of ignition and the lead fire cause. This is a pretty striking map of uh, southern Alberta. There is a lightning strike shadow in the Rockies, so about the first 20 kilometers east of the divide, there's hardly any lightning strike. That map is, uh, records the lightning strike density per 10 kilometers by 10 kilometers square, so about a township. And we can see in the dark blue and the pale blue that there's uh, less than 10 strikes per, per summer. So it's very hard to get lightning fires. And uh, in the Crow's Nest Corridor, you're a bit of an exception. Uh, you do get uh, more lightning strikes here. And it is a, a double whammy because you get a lot of lightning fires from, from BC. So a lot of fires came across Crow's Nest Pass. Then you get more uh, chances of ignition in the green. What I found like here you have a cluster of orange and red. That doesn't mean it gets pounded by, uh, by lightning fires. There's no great correlation. It just shows that uh, anything that is moderate to high has a better chance of having lightning fires. And then plus in the Crow's Nest Pass, you, know, you get the roads and then you get the, uh, the railroad plus more lightning. So really there's the high risk of a uh, fire in this, uh, in this area. So if we don't get lightning, uh, and yet we have uh, forests, the lodgepole pine have serotonous cones. They have the genetic ability of surviving fire, and this has been like this for thousands of years. So we believe that uh, traditional burning and the use of uh, fire by First Nation has been uh, on the landscape since the retreat of the uh, ice cap. And this uh, photo is, uh, is just east of Banff National Park in the clear water, and that big meadow uh, was burned many times, and we get uh, several fires that stand at more than 11 fires. Uh, do you guys see well, like uh, in front, because all the lights are on? Yeah, yeah okay. Because I can't see from this angle. <laughs> we're, we're trying to do something about that. If you're okay, I can read on my screen. It's just for the, the audience. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, of fires that. Okay, good. <laughs> 
So the water fires have been reported in that stand, and it's a stand that looks very thin, thinned out, and uh, you know, the, the evidence goes all the way back to uh, 1725, so well before the first settlers and the explorers. And then last summer, when I did the fire mystery in the, in the highwood, and this is where I say the highwood is very similar to, this is the headwaters of the old man, just in here. And this landscape is very similar in terms of physiography. And uh, right in here, we found uh, a stand also that had a lot of uh, fire evidence well before, again, the, the settlers. And it's always these uh, beautiful meadows. You can imagine how the First Nations would be there, you know, camping, and then perhaps using fire to, uh, to attract more bison or ungulates for, for hunting. And some of these stands look like nothing from a distance. So you think this is just another spruce stand or another pine stand, and then yet you walk in and then you find trees that have like more than five uh, fire scars on them. So a real, uh, what I call a jewel of a, <laughs> of a stand for fire mystery. I'll give you uh, a summary of uh, a couple of fire regimes. Uh, we have the what we call the subalpine fire regime, and this is... The landscape, 30% uh, to 50% of the landscape is composed of, of rock and ice. So it breaks down uh, the forest cover uh, a lot, So which means that forest fires in the mountains usually tend to be small. They cannot spread very far. Uh, it's also higher elevation, so we have more snow. And uh, so our, the fire season is shorter. We'll often get more fires during the summertime only. Access is more difficult, so we get less uh, people fire. And also, we know we're in a lightning strike shadow, so the risk of ignition is really low in the subalpine. So we end up having a, a, a fire regime that is, has very long intervals. We have high-intensity fires because the, the interval is so long, there's a lot of fuel on the ground. And when it burns, we get these high-intensity stand-replacing fires that clears pretty much all the landscape and very few little... Uh, island remnants that we call. And when you have steep slopes, also it also burns more uh, with higher intensity. And I'm sure everyone has held a match at some point. When you set it straight, you don't burn your fingers. As soon as you tilt it, the flame comes and touches your fingers. So that's the same principle uh, in the mountains. And when the slope gets steeper, the flame bends, you get it ignites the trees above, and then you get these very high uh, running fires, and they, they burn with high intensity. So even with prescribed burns, you might find difficult to actually have a low-intensity fire in steep landscape. It's just the fire doesn't behave, behave that way. Now, if we want to contrast with the foothills, now, of course, there's no fuel breaks. So if there is a fire in the foothills or in the montane, we get very large fires, and this is what know, scares the government these days because there's nothing to stop them. There's no rocky ridges. Um, also, there's more lightning, so there's more risk of ignition. Uh, and historically, First Nations used that landscape a lot. So the intervals were as short as 10-year uh, intervals in some areas. The fire cycles uh, are 30 to 50 years, whereas the subalpine was at least 100 years. And... Um, the fire scars that we find on the landscape have shown us that the, the scar tissues were in the spring or in the dormant season of the tree, so in May or April. Again, there's no lightning during that time, so you can only pin it back to uh, traditional burning. Five minutes. <laughs> okay, well, uh, <laughs> from all the fire history studies, there were 15 large fire seasons that were determined, and I found that all over southern Alberta. 
all the same fire years. In the upper foothills, uh, the fire cycle was found to be 40 years. This is between the little, little red deer and, um, and the ghost and the wipers. And these fires overlap each other. It's 10 burns. So it kind of gives you an idea of how complex the mosaic uh, would have been. This is the image that I want you to remember. This is the elbow watershed, and this is like the castle. So you will have, you know, your headwaters are bound, you know, lots of rocks. Then you have the foothills. And then here, this is 13 fires overlapping each other uh, all the way back to, uh, to 1730. But most of them are between, between 1840 and 1936. So you get this, uh, this overlap all the time, and um, occasionally you'll have uh, fires, like in 1910 was a bad fire year, but well actually you'll have a finger, I don't think you see that very well, it's in, yeah, it's in yellow, it comes in, it pushes in into the headwaters, so it happened a few times, but what was interesting was always the fires from the foothills that moved in into the mountains and not the other way around. So if you want to protect the headwaters of the castle, uh, this is why it's important to do something with the fuel the forest that is just at the mouth of the watershed to prevent any burning to the headwaters. Uh, the high wood, the fires are much larger, like I was saying, uh, but I think if you, excuse me, I'll, I'll skip over it just because I don't have enough uh, time. Two. two minutes, thank you. We'll talk about the ecosystem departure right now. Uh, this is what you would think to be a healthy landscape. Uh, in my eyes, it's not. The fire cycle used to be 40 years historically, the natural fire cycle. Now there's been fire suppression for 80 years. The departure is 200%. And when the government tells you during the summertime they're banning people from being in the, in the, in the landscape, that's for this reason. There's no fuel breaks. If there was to be a fire with the amount of fuel that has accumulated on the ground is an extremely high risk of, uh, of burning. This is what it looked like historically. Uh, this is a picture from a surveyor in 1890, a lot of very small trees. Not to say that this is what it should be today or this is what we want, but I just want to show the contrast of what it used to be like. These photos, you can all access them through the Mountain Legacy project. Uh, just those are examples. You can click in and then as when you zoom in in Google Earth, it will show you the camera stations. And just to give you an example, the Beaver Mines Lake, is down in here. So I'm looking, I'm going to look at two camera stations, Table Mountain and uh, Carbondale. So we can see from Carbondale in the Carbondale Valley that uh, in 1914 it was all burnt. You have a lot of snags everywhere. But when you, so there's a contrast when you look towards the foothill of the prairies, everything is, uh, has been burned. And it's, there's no mature timber. There's small pockets but not many. When you look towards the mountains, you see the return interval is, is getting longer and you have uh, mature timber. If we look at the, that's the tip of Beaver Mines Lake, there is a mosaic. I find this, this landscape to my eyes, if you just look at the age uh, class composition, this is healthier than in the upper foothills just because you have maybe four or five different age classes and uh, there's a, you know, a range of habitats. And I have to ask you to wrap up. Okay. Yeah. All right. I got uh, two slides left, I think. Uh, so anyways, when I talk about you know, breaking up the fuels is, uh, is in here uh, because we want to avoid what happened in 1936. 
where this is the, the castle, Beaver Mines Lake, it's here, you have the ski hill over here, but you see most of the landscape was burned by the 1936 fire. So that's not a good situation. The little white wiggly patches are the current logging uh, that's taking place. You will see that actually the cut blocks are over the 1936 fire. They're staying away from, uh, from the old mature timber. And it is uh, a beginning for starting to break up the fuel. Like now they have, I don't know if they're talking with the government or, or if there's any planning, but to my eyes, when I see those cut blocks, I'm kind of glad that, they're, that they are there because you, know, you need to break up the fuel if you don't want to burn the headwaters of, uh, of the watershed. And uh, with a combination probably of prescribed burning as well uh, to use both because um, this is the last slide. I'm not going yeah, the block fire suppression uh, will be a lot more effective if you can break up the fuel on the landscape. And perhaps, you know, with the uh, high-intensity uh, fires or, or very drought conditions with high winds, you might not be able to stop those fires, but at least if you break up the forest cover, there's a lot better chance. The background image is uh, what Banff National Park has done. They, they went in with machinery, and even though it's a national park, so even though it would be the castle would become a wildland park, I would still advocate that we need to manage the fuels and then bring, bring them up through thinning and then uh, perhaps a number of prescribed burns every 15 or 20 years to try to keep the fuels down and to protect the banks of the river so that you can uh, have a good water quality. I'm going in a castle this summer. This is all the plots. And then just want to thank people that supported all these research over the years. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.